Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Ronald Reagan used to like to quote an old Russian proverb. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. <laughs> Fox Mulder, on the other hand, used to say, I was told once that the best way to regenerate body heat is to crawl naked into a sleeping bag with somebody else who's already naked. No, wait, sorry, wrong clip. That's the one I play to <laughs> myself when I go to sleep at night. Here's the clip that I meant. People said trust no one. It's hard, Scully. Suspecting everyone, everything. I don't know what trust no one is in Russian, but there's a reason my wife and I named our son Fox. Listen, <laughs> people in power have always lied to the public. They mm-hmm. kind of have to. If you're a king in a land with a thousand people, what's stopping them from rising up against you? Mostly just the lie that you deserve your power because of divine intervention or ancient bloodlines or some such bullshit. If you're the CEO of a large company today earning $10 million a year while your staff can barely pay their rent, what's stopping them from going on strike for fairer wages? The lie that you deserve it and they don't. When every survey taken shows that people don't trust politicians... Why do they continue to elect them anyway instead of just refusing to support a corrupt and broken system? Because of the lie that this is how democracy works. Bullshit, my friends, is everywhere. In this era where most mainstream news is so biased and corporatized that it's hard to tell it apart from fake news where weaponized AI propaganda machines can convince people to elect a reality TV star or leave the EU, where Facebook, Twitter and Reddit are gamed by fake accounts pretending to be real people while they're really just paid shills for brands and candidates, and where conspiracy theorists are not just overweight, tinfoil hat-wearing virgins in their mother's basements, but presidents and the CIA... We all need to improve our bullshit detection systems. We all need a stronger bullshit filter. So welcome, my friends, to the very first episode of the Bullshit Filter Podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. Joining me on this journey is my podcast wife, Ray Harris. (laughs) Hello, Cam, and hello to everyone else. Not feeling your best today, Ray. Not 100%, but I am... Going to give it a go. Uh, our regular... Because the truth has to be told. The truth has to be told. That's why we are here. Our regular listeners will be wondering, how are we even going to tell that Ray's not at his best? Like, <laughs> you, you know, you didn't really. Anyway. We do lots of podcasts on various historical subjects. But late last year, Ray, we did a four-hour-long dissection of the New York Times' obituary on Fidel Castro. And a lot of people, including one of my 16-year-old boys, said... You know what? You should talk more about current affairs. That's actually interesting. So here we are. Yes. And that's a good point because, you know, we're sitting there, we, we were talking about that, we were dissecting that, and it's like, you and I, as much as we love history, I want to talk about what's going on in North Korea. I want to talk about the gl- global collapse that we're just getting over with now. I want to talk about what they're going to do with um, pot in the United States now that Trump is president. I want to cover all these different subjects, and we've kind of tied our hands by doing history podcasts, which is great. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of fun. But we want the freedom to jump around, to dig down deep, to get to the to the base of the matter, and to be able to give you the truth about different subjects so you can decide for yourself And that's what this podcast is all about. We're just going to jump around, have a lot of fun, and examine things through our filter. What you're saying is we will report, they will decide, Ray? Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I I didn't want to get sued. So, yeah, 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 yeah. 
What we're going to do, folks, is take issues that are big news with a capital B and try to pick them apart. And we're going to take as much time as we need to to tease them out piece by piece, bit by bit, looking at the deep history behind today's events, trying to work out what's likely to be true, what's likely to be propaganda, and who stands to benefit. And unlike the nightly news, we're not going to be constrained by artificial time horizons. A topic might take us just one hour, Mm -hmm. or it might take us 10 hours, and whatever it is, so be it. Like we've done with all of our history subjects in the past, we're going to do our best with our limited brains to be as thorough as possible in trying to understand and tell the story in as entertaining a fashion as we can with our limited talents as dick joke tellers. Now, if you prefer your news and easy-to-digest, gluten-free, politically correct sound bites, this is probably not going to be the show for you. I know. We invite you to suggest future topics, but we'll mostly be tackling the issues that interest us. And if you don't like it, tough titties. Yeah. Now, neither of us have any particular credibility outside of the fact that we have spent a lot of our lives studying history and politics. And we tend to think the old maxim is true. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Do you know who said that, Ray? Uh, Yogi Berra. (laughs) No, I think I'm wrong. Who said that? George Santillana, he was a Spanish philosopher, essayist, poet, novelist, and, not many people know this, a fucking awesome guitarist. Hold on, I might have the wrong guy there. Anyway, close enough. Think, yeah, close enough. Think of this show as investigative journalism without any actual journalism. Um, maybe we could call it investigative Googling with a lot of reading. There we go. Something we Wikipedia the hell out of it. <laughs> now, our first topic is going to be the Syrian Civil War, the deadliest mm-hmm. Conflict the 21st century has witnessed so far. Um, But, you know, now that Trump's president, who knows? It could just be the beginning. Uh, And this is probably going to... Trump is saying, Trump is saying, here, hold my beer, watch this. (laughs) Yeah, hold my beer. Now, this is going to be a long one. We don't know how long it's going to take. um, But, uh, and it needs to be a long one because there's a lot of history as you can probably imagine with anything going on in the Middle East, there's a lot of history that uh, needs to really be understood, I think, in order to understand what's what you read in the headlines today. So um, we're going to get into it. Ray, do you have any uh, introductory yeah. comments you want to throw in before we get up in them guts? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just wanted to mention one more reason uh, for doing this show. Again, we're very excited about this. But for me, it was a personal reason. Cam, in other episodes, you have mentioned other people that have uh, taken you under their wing, have been a mentor for you. And I was thinking about doing this show, and it was like, during my teens and my 20s, I didn't have anybody to kind of show me things, guide me the way, point out the bullshit to me or whatever. So by the time I'm 29, I'm starting to figure out things don't add up. So I spend my 30s and 40s, you know, unlearning what I've learned. And uh, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of wasted time, unfortunately. But if this show can help strip away some of that stuff and save someone uh, all that wasted time, and if, if someone can, if this show can possibly help you see through the crap so you can uh, see things the way they really are and live your life according to the reality of the situation, not just what you've been told, then, then we have, we'll have more than done our job. I just really wanted to say that because I just, for those of you who are maybe younger listening to this, uh, hopefully we can um, strip away some of the crap that's, that's, that's you're being fed through the computer, through the TV, through your phone or whatever, and uh, you know, bring the truth to you, and it will make a huge difference in your life. Well, uh, and I don't want to give the impression that we're going to be telling people the truth and how it is, and that you should take our opinions and uh, run with right, that. Right, no. I guess... But, you know, the strip, strip away the lies, at least expose the lies. 
Or at least expose the fact that these things, uh, there are lots of layers, they're a lot more complex than they are often right. portrayed in the news and by our politicians or business leaders who kind of dumb it down in you know, easy-to-digest, gluten-free, politically correct sound bites for the masses because that's how propaganda works. And uh, what I, if I have any ambition for any of our shows, it's for our listeners to go, Oh, right. Well, that wasn't as simplistic as I thought it was. And actually, there are lots of different ways of looking at this and just over time develop a healthy skepticism for everything that they hear on the news. Not to be cynical, not to be a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist and think that everything is a conspiracy, but to realize that quite often the version of events we're being told by the news, by the politicians, by the corporate media, by corporations themselves – is quite often not the whole truth and that it pays to, yeah, on purpose. And it pays if you can uh, peel away the layers of the onion and try and look at it from multiple perspectives. So that's, we're going to do that. We're going to go through our own process. The reason we're doing these subjects that I'm interested in uh, is that I want to take the time to peel away the layers for myself. So, I'm not here standing on a soapbox saying this is how it is. I'm saying, hey, come along right. with me, with Ray, on a journey while we pick these things apart, see what conclusions you come to. Not It's got nothing to do with my conclusions. See what conclusions you, the listener, come to after we, we pick it apart and try and look at the, the different sides of the story. Yeah. And out of all of the shows that we do, I think we certainly hope that this one more than any other has a lot of uh, feedback from people get into conversations. Like Cam said, uh, mention subjects for shows that we can consider, but we certainly hope this is a dialogue where people um, can teach us and we can teach you. And the point that I was trying to make earlier was that when I was younger, I just accepted everything at face value. And then I had to go back and undo all that. And so maybe if we can help you just be a little more cynical in a very healthy way, a very protective way, then, then will have done our job. That was the point I was uh, really trying to get down to. So we're the onion peelers. So that's another name for the podcast. But getting back to the uh, Syrian civil war, Oh my goodness, you have so many factors. You've got the uh, Shia versus the Sunni. You've got uh, you've got the United States on one side. You've got uh, Russia on the other. You've got the interests of those in the Middle East. And of course, there's oil. And um, so we're, we're concerned about that. And then you've got the instability that you could easily say the Western powers have caused, and now we're we're, we're kind of uh, worried about what we have what we have uh, drummed up there. So there are just so many different factors going into this. Um, after we give you an introduction, uh, we figured the best thing that we can do is go back to the very beginning of some of these problems and get back to uh, the the Prophet Muhammad himself. Yeah. Now, the conflict in Syria has been going on for nearly six years. Uh, More than 450,000 Syrians have been killed in the fighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, On top of that, there's more than a million injured and over 12 million Syrians, half of the country's Mm. population before the war, have been displaced from their homes. That's about half the population of Australia as well, about the same size population in Syria and Australia, to put that into perspective, um, half of the country is is homeless. Uh, Twelve million people, man, like that's insane to try and wrap yeah. your head around. What do you do with those people? So, what's really going on over there? What's the basis of the conflict? Who's supporting who, and why? These are the things that we want to try and understand. But let's start with the basics for the geographically challenged. I know most Americans don't learn any geography outside of the continental United States. Never needed it before. (laughs) Where is Syria? (laughs) Syria uh, sits in that part of the map that isn't the United States. Let's start there. Um, Shocking, I know, to a lot of Americans. Uh, Just the rest of them. I think you refer to it. Uh, It's... if you're gonna, if you're if you're talking to Americans right now, what you should probably do is start with Italy as a reference point uh-huh. and go from there because we all been taught the boot. The boot. Uh, so right. I, I'm just throwing that out. I'm just throwing that out. Is the boot? Well, you want to go a little bit sort of southeast of the boot of the heel of the boot, mm-hmm. and you'll get to something they call the Mediterranean. <laughs> Am I being condescending enough yet? We're 12 minutes in, condescending to the Americans. I'm kidding, Americans. Don't sit. Come on. Chill the fuck Come out, on. you delicate little Uncrush snowflakes. Your arms. 
You're the world's Don't through your nose. greatest superpower. No I'm just I'm just teasing. I'm tickling. Come on. That's right. Learn to laugh. Um, so it's in the Middle East, obviously, you've got where Syria sits, they've got Turkey to the north, Iraq to the east, Jordan to mm-hmm. the south, Lebanon to the west. They're a little north of Israel. Uh, basically, if you go to the north coast of Africa where Cairo is in Egypt and you mm-hmm. just travel east along the coast, dum 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 eventually you'll get to Syria. you go gotcha. sort of past Israel, past Jordan... Uh, mm-hmm. And then you'll you'll get to uh, well Lebanon, and then you'll get to Syria. Gotcha. But as Ray uh, indicated before, to really understand the basis of the conflict, we need to go back, back, back into deep history and understand the major conflict in Islam between the Sunni and the Shia, which goes all the way back to the death of the Prophet Muhammad in six thirty two. Uh, we'll need to understand the history of, of uh, Iran, of Saudi Arabia, of Syria itself, obviously. But let's start, I think, with the Sunni-Shia conflict. So, assalamu alaikum, Ray. Okay. So there was, this, there was this man, a businessman, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And like a lot of people near Mecca, he was uh, concerned about business. He was concerned about trade, making money, uh, being able to take care of his, uh, his family and himself, that kind of thing. Um, however, he, was, he turns out to be a little different than, the, than your average uh, Muhammad. And again, I'm not making any jokes. Please do not jihad me. Please do not. Okay, I have a, I have a family of my own to take care of. So anyway, so around 610 CE, month of Ramadan... Each, uh, this is about the time each year where Muhammad will go to a cave uh, on the summit of Mount Hira outside of Mecca, and he'll sit there and he'll contemplate life. He'll contemplate his life, what's going on in the wider world. He will pray. He will fast. He'll help the poor. And overall, he can't help but get a sense that, you know, Arab society kind of in a decline, not really sure what's going on. Everybody's um, worried about the the, uh, the coin, the making money, not about anything else. Mecca is doing what, um, well financially, but spiritually, there just seems to be something, something's missing there. So, and then he's also concerned about that Allah, the one God, uh, has not sent Arabs, uh, people like himself, uh, a prophet or scripture in their own language. Well, all of that's about to change. So on the night of Ramadan the 17th, Muhammad feels this presence squeezing him tightly. And words of Arabs in Arab scripture is coming out of his lips. Now, obviously, this is a very amazing, miraculous, stupendous thing. So he doesn't know what to do right away. He doesn't run out and just tell everybody, hey, I just heard, you know, from God or from a representative God. So for two years, he's not really sure what to do. So he only tells his wife and her cousin, who was a Christian. And he tells other family members, but these revelations, whatever you would like to call them, they keep coming. And so he can't keep it in anymore. This started in 610 and by 612, he is preaching. He is letting everyone know. So he is starting to get converts. First, it starts with his family. And then there are some uh, poor people in Mecca who are obviously desperate looking for a change. And so he starts to gather people unto him. Now, Cam, I don't know how much... um, detail you want to go into his message i don't know if you want to go right to the, to the end of his death or whatever we could go either way yeah no i was just going to start when he died man but uh oh dang you oh, know okay. nice Wait, nice bit of me, background there let, let me just let me just throw a couple things out because again this is really close to jesus christ jc julius caesar whoever you want to call him so i, I just think it's really interesting that um so he's upset that um uh muhammad let's see here he says that People shouldn't focus on building a private fortune. If you have money, you should share it. You should create a society where weak and vulnerable people are treated with respect. And um, and if people don't change their ways, their society is going to go to hell in a handbasket or whatever the air version of that is. Uh, anyway, so... Um, so he he's letting all these people know, and as you can imagine, the businessmen in the area are very are not very happy because what he's saying is, when you die, you will be judged, and you will be judged about how kind you were and all the good works you did or did not do. But still, his um his uh, message it gathers, and they're able to expand this. Um, 
And so like Cam says, so, so they are able to get or grab a very large part of the territory um, near Mecca, um, Saudi Arabia, what we call Saudi Arabia today. And at 632, he dies. And he, here's the thing about what he's been doing for the last 23 years is he's been he's been com- he's been having these revelations, recitations uh, given to him, he's been commenting on current events. So not only is he talking about the proper way to be and what to avoid, he's been commenting on current events. So when he dies in 632, the question is not only who is going to succeed him, how are they going to hold their quote-unquote empire together, but how are they going to know how to live their life and how are they going to know what to judge what's happening nowadays because he's not there to react to it. So the big, huge question is, who is going to succeed this man and how is this person going to hold this empire when it was pretty much focused on the spiritual strength and character and personality of Muhammad? Nice. Nice little background there, Raimondo. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a background kind of guy. Now, for people going, what the hell has this got to do with Syria? Um, You know, I think it's important to understand that of the 1.6 or 7 billion Muslims in the world today, Mm -hmm. depending on the stats you read, somewhere between 70 to 90% of them, let's say around 1.4 billion, are Sunni. The remainder, 10 to 30% or a couple of hundred million, are Shia. And what's the difference between Sunni and Shia? Well, when the Prophet Muhammad died in 632, as Ray said, there was a division uh, in Islam about who should succeed him. On one hand, the Sunnis believed that Abu Bakr, the, the father of Muhammad's wife Aisha, was the rightful successor. And that the method of, of choosing the leaders or electing the leaders, process known as shura, should be guided by the Quran. And uh, that was how they wanted to move forwards. But there was another camp that became known as the Shia, who believed that Muhammad, while he was still alive, had ordained that his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, would be the next leader of the community or the caliph, as he's known. Um, now, they, the Shias believe that Muhammad had ordained this uh, and that it was quoted in something known as the Hadith of the Pond of Qum. Mm. What's a Hadith, Ray? That's a really good question. I'm getting these terms mixed up with Game of Thrones uh, <laughs> stuff. So <laughs> what, what is a Hadith? Well, a, a hadith is a report of something Muhammad said or did. Uh, it's basically gotcha. that's what it means in Arabic. It means report or narrative. The hadith are the second most important documents to Muslims after the Quran. The Quran, uh, uh, Muhammad's statements on uh, you know his his uh, uh, communications with God about Muslims, how they should live their lives, how to build a better right. world, and then his uh, narratives uh, on, on you know what was going on around him, as you mentioned before, uh, was known as the Hadith. Now, the Hadith of the Pond of Qum. Uh, Muhammad supposedly told his followers that he was getting close to death and that Ali, his son-in-law, should be their master when he was gone. He died a few months later. Now, Ali was married to Fatima, Muhammad's daughter, by his wife, Khadija. Khadija bint Kulwalid. Now, so he's got two wives, Fatima, who's, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, Khadija, whose uh, daughter Fatima is married to Ali, and Aisha whose father is Abu Bakr, who becomes the um, other potential successor. Right. So that's where Sunni Shia comes from. It comes from that initial split. One group wanted to support the father-in-law. Another group wanted to support the son-in-law. Uh, and, and, and yeah, you know, it's been going on ever since <laughs> 632, basically. The, the word Shia comes from Shiatu Ali, which is Arabic for the partisans of Ali or the the, the friends ah. or supporters of Ali, basically. And Sunni, I, Sunni sorry, yeah. means the followers of the Sunnah or Way, the followers of the Way in Arabic. That's the, the way it's set out, the Shura set out in the Quran in terms of how to determine the uh, success of uh, caliphs. 
they're, they're opposed to succession based on Muhammad's bloodline. They think right. that it should be voted on by the community, and they voted for his father-in-law, where the Shia believe it's based on Muhammad's bloodline. Right. Now, I thought it was interesting that um, for, for the initial phase of this after Muhammad's death, they're going to be able to pretty much get along because there's like four men who spent a lot of time with Muhammad, who uh, who learned a lot from him. So they're going to feel pretty good about having these guys as the leaders. So so not going to get too crazy uh, too soon. But I just did, I did want to quote one uh, thing from the Hadith just to really make this even more confusing. Uh, so supposedly the prophet says, my Ummah, which is the community, will be fragmented into 73 sects, and all of them will be in the hellfire except one. So oh, these people so have to figure out which sounds, one it is. Sounds like Alexander the Great saying to the strongest. Exactly. Doesn't, no! Exactly. No! So as you, as you can imagine, the Sunnis and the Shias are pretty sure their one is the one that's not going to go to hellfire. So. Sorry, I didn't mean to hit that. What was that? <laughs> I, I meant to hit this. No! <clears throat> give us so some, why would you say that? <laughs> give us some clarity, dude. <laughs> 73, really, and only one? Yeah. Oh, that's uh, not very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, now, his son-in-law, Ali, never raised any claim to the caliphate himself and remained loyal to the three caliphs who were elected before him, starting with mm-hmm. uh, Abu Bakr. So uh, this goes on for a while, for, for sort of 20-odd years. Um, and then the third caliph, Uthman ibn Affan, was assassinated and Ali was elected as the fourth caliph. And mm-hmm. he was concerned with restoring peace to the land, um, sort of held back from taking any immediate action against the assassins of Uthman. But then in 656, there's something known as the Battle of the Camel, where Aisha, uh, one of Muhammad's wives, the, 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 mm-hmm. the daughter of the first successive caliph, Abu Bakr, she opposed Ali, who was her step-son-in-law, outside the city of Basra because she wanted justice uh, f- uh, on the assassins of the, the previous caliph, Uthman. Mm-hmm. But her forces were defeated and she was respectfully uh, escorted back to Medina. Ali became the caliph in 656 And he ruled for five years before he was also assassinated. Dang. Weren't all four... I'm trying to remember were all four assassinated. I know the third... I don't have that in my notes. Quite possibly. I think think besides the first one, because he only survived for two years, I think the the number two, three, and four were assassinated. Mm. So not off to a great start here. So after Ali was assassinated, the caliphate, which was based in the Arabian Peninsula, passed back to the family of Uthman, the third caliph, and it's known as the Umayyad dynasty, and they were based in Damascus. Now, according to Sunni tradition, Uthman was a cousin of Muhammad. They shared a grandfather, but uh, again, the Shia rejected the way that the Sunni were transferring the power through the election of the community. Again, they believed it had to be passed down through the bloodline and uh, they rejected this transfer of power back to the Umayyad rulers. But the Sunni managed to dominate the first 900 years of Islamic rule, except a brief period uh, known as the Shia Fatimid, Fatimid dynasty in the 10th century. Um, until the Safavid dynasty was established in Persia in 1501. Now, we know a little bit about Persia because we've talked about it a lot with both the Alexander and the Caesar shows. So here we are back in Persia, <laughs> 1800 years after Alexander. Yeah. Yeah, so so Ismail I uh, was able to get a toehold um, in um we're going to just, you know, Persia. And he also gets some other areas as well. And so what he does is for the next 10 years, he consolidates it. And this is the, how do you say it, the Safafid dynasty? Something like that. Yeah. Safafid, that like sounds that. Okay. good. 
that's good to me. So anyway, so so he pretty much has two foundations for his for his dynasty. One is uh, being Shia, and two obviously is being Persian. So so um, Persia, which is pretty much Sunni, he is going to by the tip of a sword convert this entire area over to Shia. Now, normally when you try to convert someone, obviously on, for uh, when it comes to religion, you try to do it by force. Uh, it normally has the opposite effect. It, it, it drives them uh, to hold on to their religion even stronger. But because he takes, he does it very um, thoroughly and he's there for at least 10 years, he's able to convert the country over to Shiism. Uh, he, he pretty much sets up a leader who is going to organize everything and they're going to favor their own. They're going to destroy the Sunni mosques. Uh, you have to, it's compulsory to curse the first three Sunni caliphs. Um, and they're going to um, replace all the Sunni um, scholars with their own. So over over the years, he's able to systematically, in a very organized way, purge this other place. It was pretty much convert or die, and he didn't give you very long to think about it. It was either yes or you get you know you get killed instantly. So that's why this entire area is going to end up Shia through the tip of a sword. That's the way we should build an audience for our podcast: is listen or die. I like that. It's growing on me. <laughs> let's 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 talk about that afterwards. Let's do something. I'm, I'm totally I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm totally okay with that. Yeah, yeah. So over this, I, sorry. No, I was just going to say I don't know how much you want to go into, but basically he, he wasn't just doing this to be a jerk. Um, <laughs> Of course, because, and this is the whole point of this entire series, there are political reasons behind it. Uh, he does have Sunni neighbors. Uh, he's got Turkey. He's got Central Asian Uzbeks he's got to worry about. He wants to take Persia and build it into a very strong uh, identity, a cultural identity, because there's the Ottoman threat next to them. Some of the people might be thinking, hey, the Ottomans are pretty got it pretty good. Let's convert to them or whatever. So he's kind of like Alexander. He's going through, he's converting, obviously by force, but he's trying to build an identity to avoid any kind of uh, fifth columnists coming in and ruining all of his work. So he's being cruel. He's, he's doing the conversion, but then there's political reasons behind it. It's not just for the sake of cruelty and the shia felt then as i think they still feel today as like they're a religious minority uh mm-hmm. islam today is the second largest religion on the planet congratulations uh, well done mm-hmm. islam nice work um but uh the shia are still as i said before somewhere about and usually you see numbers saying 10 to 15 percent sometimes it's a little bit higher 20 to 30 percent but 10 to 15 I, I think is a good guess based on what i read um, and, and they are treated fairly harshly uh, by Sunni uh, Muslims in, in a lot of regions around the world. So they, like mm-hmm. the Jews uh, after World War II, wanting a land, well, even before that, finally getting it after World War II, a land of their own where they wouldn't be persecuted. The Shia wanted the same thing and uh, they were able to take Persia, which later became known as Iran. Um, in right. the, uh, the the 30s, 1930s, we started calling it Iran, which we've talked about on the Cold War show recently. Uh, anyway, it's a long story. It goes back to Aryan. Don't let me get into it again. Um, now, the, the main enemy that the Safavids were fighting were the Ottomans, uh, which were the sort of the, the controllers of the Sunni Caliphate. The Ottomans founded at the end of the 13th, century in mm-hmm. Turkey, northwest Anatolia, by the Turkish tribal leader Osman. And of course, that was an empire that lasted all the way up until World War One. Wow. And these two empires fought each other for hundreds of years and basically between them settled the political borders of modern Iran and Turkey by about the 17th century. And their legacies resulted in the current demographic distribution of the two main sects of Islam, the Sunni and the Shia. Today, Shia make up the majority of Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Qatar, I think. And um, they have a large number of Shia in Lebanon, whereas the Sunni make up the majority of the other 40 majority Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia, of course, through to Morocco and uh, Indonesia. Hey, 
I'm sorry. Let me know when we get to a stopping point because I want to ask a question that hopefully will piss off everyone <laughs> equally. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to start talking about the differences that, apart from the the succession of the caliph, the other di- major mm-hmm. differences between the Sunni and the Shia. Do you want to ask your question before that? Yeah, why not? Let's just go ahead and piss people off now. So, 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 for for those people for the um, for the Shia, they they believe that the fourth caliph was actually the first because he was the one from the from the he had the proper blood, the bloodline. I'm just trying to imagine if Jesus Christ had a wife. And a child, and um, would, would would the child, if it was a male, obviously, would, would that just be considered something special? Or when they need to pick another leader, like a, like a, I'll just use the word pope for now, just to be convenient, would they pick someone who's most qualified, someone who knows the scriptures, someone who uh, walks the walk and talks the talk, or do they automatically give it to the child because it's the offspring of their savior? So that, that's just just kind of a a compa- comparison. So. For the um, Sunni, their ideas is like, well, let's find out who's most qualified and get them to lead. And then the, the Shia is like, no, it has to come from the bloodline of the prophet. So uh, I don't know. I just find that very fascinating. And you obviously you want to piss off a lot of Christians. You don't want to piss off a lot of Christians. But if Jesus had a child, uh, would, would they have said, okay, your your father's been killed by the Romans or whatever. Here's here's our now our new Lord and Savior or the new representative on of heaven on earth. I don't know. I just would, would really, I just find that interesting and would like to know what would have happened if he had fathered a son. Well, he did, according to the authors of the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Aha. You know, you never read. That was hid, <laughs> hidden away. Yeah. I mean, this it's Dan, Dan Brown, you know, the Da Vinci Code based his oh, yeah, fictional stuff ago. on a lot of this. Uh-huh. Well, these, this book, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail came out, I think in the, the early eighties. I read it. God, decades ago. But basically the theory of these guys, non-fiction supposedly, uh, is that uh, uh, when Jesus was executed, uh, Mary Magdalene was pregnant with their child Mm. Mm -hmm. and uh, she was whisked away to France uh, where she was hidden away by the the believers uh, to keep them away from Jesus' enemies. Uh, and the Holy Grail, you know, it's 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 portrayed in the Arthurian legend as the cup that held the receptacle that held Jesus' blood. Well, that right. supposedly is her womb, or the baby inside of her womb is the receptacle that held ah. the blood of Jesus. That's the Holy Grail, which has been sought for millennia. Because and, and according to these guys, the Vatican have been you know hiding this story away because the uh, the, the the power that rose in the church over the first century or two after Jesus died was all driven by men. They wanted to pass yeah. the power around amongst themselves. They didn't want it to anyway. It's uh, it's a fun read. Don't take you it. Know, you know what don't take it too seriously, uh, but it's a fun read. <laughs> that, that might sound far-fetched, but, I mean, they're still covering up the child sex abuse. So, hey, anything's possible. Yeah. Please please go yeah. on with your Catholics, with your you stories. have zero credibility, so uh, we might as well believe yeah. that. It's Let's as good as anything you've got to tell us. Anyway, it, back back it, to exactly. Sudi and Shia. Yes. Now, apart from the succession of the caliph, the major difference, as I understand it, between the two is the nature of the Mahdi. M-A-H-D-I. Now, the Mahdi is basically the, 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 the prophesied redeemer of Islam. And speaking of Jesus, the Muslims right. believe that the Mahdi is the ultimate savior of humankind who will uh, return with Jesus, who they mm. refer to, as the Quran refers to, as Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus' son of Mary, I guess that is. Aha. Right. in order to fulfill their joint mission of bringing peace and justice to the world. By the way, did you know that Jesus is the most mentioned person in the Quran? No. So Jesus has a sidekick. <laughs> or, or the Marty has a sidekick. A sidekick? Oh, well, oh, I don't know which one's the sidekick. Okay, no, yeah. I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm just Or maybe they're like so, Batman so, and Superman. Yeah. They're like equals, right. but with equals. different... Different skin color. <laughs> no, I guess they wouldn't. No, they're from the same area. I take that back. Well, Batman wears back. a cowl, a right. bit, a bit like a burka, but with ears. Right, right. So Jesus is Superman, well, 
And and Batman is the Marty, maybe, is how this breaks down. Gotcha. Well, Gee. in my grandmother's house, big picture of Jesus, blonde hair, blue-eyed, mm. just, yeah, wow. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a, 60s movie star. What I call American Mormon Jesus. <laughs> yeah. White, blonde hair, blue eyes, ripped. Sur- he's a surfer dude. He's basically the dude from The Big Lebowski without the well, He's got the beard, actually. Yeah, he's got the whole deal. Without the bathrobe. The bathrobe's, yeah. Um, yeah, so Jesus, actually, Jesus and company. Little known fact that uh, Jesus yeah. used to say to people, "Hey, look, Jesus is my father. Just call me the dude. <laughs> <laughs> the dude. <laughs> call him Mr. Jesus. My dad is Mr. God. Mr. Yosef. He goes, no, look, Yosef was my dad. Just call me, just call me the dude, man. Um, yeah, didn't. So that's your dinner party trivia, folks. Uh, you can say to people next, hey, guess what? Guess guess who the most mentioned person in the Quran is." Did not know that. Jesus mentioned 187 times in the Quran. That will freak your Christian friends the fuck out. It, it, it will scare them, yes. Mm. Now, I remember reading somewhere that yeah, these were stories, these were recitations, whatever, because Muhammad and a lot of the people obviously around him at the time were illiterate, so it, they had, it had to be read to them or, or whatever. So, yeah, so I just imagine, because we have to remember he wasn't establishing a new religion. They already believe that God created the world. They already believe that you're going to be judged when you, when you're, when you're, when you die. It's just that he were bringing, here was the prophet for the Arabs because they hadn't had one before. So he was just adding another layer on to something that was already established. So it's not too surprising that Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. Yeah, that's a bit much, but you know, not too surprised. Although when you say they hadn't had one before, I mean, the, <laughs> you go back far enough and the Jews and the Arabs, eh, yeah. They're all pretty much the Semitic people of uh, hey, that region. Hey, you take that back right yeah. now. <laughs> you go back yeah, yeah. far enough. This is Muhammad's words, not mine. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, I guess it had been a long time, if nothing else. Now, For a while. Yes. The, the, while the, the Shia and the Sunni differ on the nature of the Mahdi, uh, many members of both groups, especially the Sufi, believe that the Mahdi will appear at the end of the world to bring about a perfect and just society. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit like uh, what the Christians believe. Now, why, so, why do we have to wait? What, what's with the waiting? <laughs> well, just you, you know, you're just not ready yet, Ray. Is what it is. You're not. <laughs> but if they're going to give it to us, if they're going to force it to us, well, you really don't have to be ready. They're just going to. There it is. Uh, well, I just. Mm. I, they're busy. They're busy. Look, they got a lot of things to do, Ray. It's not all about you, Ray. They they got other things. Take that back. They got projects. They got hobbies. They got things. They're fine. They're looking at podcasts. They're they're (laughs) train sets. I know that Jesus is big into train sets. He's got. He's got. You should see Jesus's train set. I've seen it. It's like crazy, crazy train set. He's all the time. He's down there. Uh, Anyway, right. Sufism. I mentioned. Uh Uh, I particularly like. It's the mystical aesthetic aspect of Islam. Uh, I think of it. It's a bit like what. What Zen is to Buddhism and what Advaita is to Hinduism uh, is what Sufism is to Islam. It, it, it deals with the purification of the inner self. Um, Sufis uh, strive to obtain the, the direct experience of God. They, they want to experience the oneness uh, of themselves and God. So very similar, I think, to... Zen, Advaita, and even the aesthetic forms of Christianity, which which have and, and continue to exist out there. Many people may have heard of the Sufi poet Rumi, uh, mm. not R-O-O-M-Y, as in, hey, my Rumi and I got blitzed last <laughs> night, but R-U-M-I, Rumi, uh, or you might yeah. call him Rummy, but that sound, just sounds like he's an alcoholic in the park. Uh, yeah, he's, you don't he's, want to say that. Rummy. He lived in the 13th century, uh, particularly if you've you know, been a teenager and you wanted to uh, crib some love poetry to write a, a love note to uh, a girl or a boy. You might, be, you might have stolen from Rumi before. Wrote a lot of love poems, a lot of poems about uh, experience the oneness of God and the universe. Here's a little bit of his poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 I wrote this down for you, Ray. All through eternity, beauty unveils his exquisite form in the solitude of nothingness. He holds a mirror 
to his face and beholds his own beauty. He is the knower and the known, the seer and the seen. No eye but his own has ever looked upon this universe. Some deep shit. (laughs) Now, I should also point out uh, that the term Sufi didn't come from Islam itself. The British, God bless them, came up with it to describe an aspect of Islam that they thought wasn't as crazy as the rest of it. Uh, they were like, you know what? These 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 Muslims, they're all uh, devil worshippers. But uh, Sufis, not so bad. Sufis, yeah, they got some good love poetry there. We'll 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 we'll, we'll take that. We'll get, what are they Close called? The, yeah. the Muslims refer to the practice as tasawuf, um, and the British went, yeah, we'll just call you Sufi. Uh, <laughs> do you mind if we call you Brian? That's too hard. Don't know why I did that in Australian accent. Anyway. Uh, in, <laughs> in Shia Islam, the Mahdi is a very powerful and, a, and, and sort of a core religious idea. The largest branch of Shia Islam, which is known as the Twelver Shia, Twelvers they're known to because the, uh, they believe there were 12 divinely ordained leaders known as the 12 Imams, so they're known as the Twelvers. The Twelvers believe that the Mahdi will be someone called Muhammad al-Mahdi, the 12th Imam, who will be returning from occultation. That means he was born but disappeared, a bit like Elvis. And one day he will return and fill the world with his own brand of rock and roll, justice and peace. Uh, Can't wait. (laughs) He's been hidden. Uh, Muhammad al-Mahdi this is, not Elvis, uh, by Allah since 874, 874. Uh, Elvis, of course, you know, has been hidden since 1977 and will (laughs) return with Bruce Lee one day to perform rock and roll and kung fu. And uh, Andy Kaufman will come back, uh, if he isn't already disguised as Donald Trump. I still think that maybe that's just a gag. I think you're onto something there. Andy Kaufman, long, long, long game plan gag there. (laughs) Um, now, so that's what the, the Shia believe. The Sunni, who, of course, are the, the majority, the mainstream, believe that the Mahdi hasn't been born yet but will be named Muhammad, will be a descendant of Muhammad, and uh, will sort of bring about this massive uh, boost in, in, in the success of Islam but won't necessarily be connected with the end of the world, just about restoring sort of peace and justice and all that sort of stuff. So this person's name is going to be Muhammad. Yeah. Is that what you said? When they're yeah. if he's when he's born? Yeah. Muhammad okay. and a descendant I, I, of Muhammad. Okay. Well, the you, reason I'm asking is because I, I check a lot of these people in his patients and with all due respect, they're all named Muhammad. Well I mean, I, I'm not being they are all I mean one guy his name was Muhammad Muhammad, first name, last name. P- done. So I, I could have met the um I could have met the one. And you I, could have you I could just have. didn't know it. Anyway, just, just be nice in future to anyone you meet called Muhammad. Could be the Mahdi. Are you are you here to bring back? Okay. Anyway, I just wanted to. Yeah, they're all named Muhammad. So that's that's not true and probably racist. But uh, let's let's <laughs> let's move on. You're from Virginia. I know you don't know. It's all right. I'm not blaming you. I can't you. help it. You grew up in a different I time. Can't. You're 50. You grew up in the 60s, man. Like, you don't know. Uh, now, the other differences between the uh, Sunni and the Shia include how they pray, how they dress, and who they can marry. Mm. Now, how much time have we got? Uh, okay, 10, 12, 12 minutes. minutes. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of Iran, see how much we can get into. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we move on to Iran? Does that work for you? No. No, yeah. Now, Iran uh, was actually, which might surprise a lot of younger people, a fairly moderate country until the CIA overthrew their democratically elected president in 1953. Well, you say overthrow. <laughs> actually, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mossadegh. Uh, President Mossadegh in 1953, uh, something the CIA referred to as Operation Ajax, they overthrew mm-hmm. him because he wanted to nationalise the country's oil industry and that directly led to the theocratic 
uh, Iran that we're all familiar with today. So I thought it's it's worthwhile talking a bit about that, uh, give you sort of a quick potted history. We're going to do this story in a lot more depth on our Cold War series eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the rate we're going, probably 20 years from now we'll get to that. But here's the short version. So uh, Persia, as it was known, sh- struck a deal uh, in 1901. Uh, with the Brits, the king of Persia granted a 60-year petroleum search concession to a guy called William Knox Darcy, who was actually born and grew up about an hour's flight north of Brisbane, where I live, in a little town called Rockhampton, far north Queensland, yeah. But uh, he moved back to he moved back to England with his family and ended up as a, a British oil explorer in 1900. He started to explore the idea of searching for oil in Persia. Now, let's remember that in 1900, no one knew what oil was for, what it was worth. It was just this black shit that caught on fire in the desert. Um, and, ah, you know, fire. yeah, and that you, maybe you could use to grease your hair back when you were going to a dance. I mean, it. it, it Looking dandy. <laughs> it was. Well, engines were coal uh, powered. No one really had any idea what oil was for back then. So this guy was a visionary. Um, and in 1901, as I said, he paid the King of Persia twenty thousand uh, pounds in nineteen hundred and one money, which is equivalent, I think, to sort of ten million, eleven million pounds today. Not bad mm-hmm. for a sixty-year concession to explore oil in a area that's about four hundred eighty thousand square miles, one point two million square kilometers in uh, Persia. It was basically the entire country except for about five provinces up in the north. Uh, and in exchange, the Iranian government, or the Persian government as it was known then, was given uh, a, co- a commitment that they would get 16% of his annual net profits. Mm-hmm. But he searched for years and found nothing, ended up nearly going bankrupt and had to sell his shares to the British-owned Burma Oil Company. Mm. Now, in 1908, this this entity finally discovered a major oil reserve and a new company was founded called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, APOC. That sounds fair. Many years later, it changed its name to British Petroleum, uh, which then... Flooded the world with uh, flooded the seas with oil and changed their name to BP, hoping no one would notice that they were the same company. <laughs> it's still us. Oh, that big oil slick that wasn't us. That was British Petroleum. No, got nothing to do no, with us. We're no. BP. Yeah, we're BP. Capital like, B, capital P. The- <laughs> now, uh, APOC grew slowly until World War One, when all of a sudden Persia's strategic importance uh, led the the British to buy a controlling share in the company. They uh, essentially nationalised British oil production in Iran. They took the government mm. to control over APOC. Our, our old mate, Winnie, big Winnie Churchill, the big fat pink <laughs> baby, as his daughter referred to him, uh, was in charge of the British Navy and, as we've covered on our Cold War series, wanted to convert it from coal to oil a lot of benefits, uh, easier to carry fuel with you on voyages when it's oil and not coal, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot easier to deal with. A whole bunch of, of advantages converting to oil. So in July 1914, the British government acquired a 51% stake in APOC, appointed two directors to its board, and negotiated a secret contract to provide the British Navy, the Admiralty, with a 20-year supply of oil under pretty attractive terms. Damn. I'll stop there for a breath. Do you want to talk anything about that period up to now without jumping unnecessarily ahead? <laughs> no, just just that, um, yeah, this is a very practical uh, maneuver for the British. Obviously, their Navy rules the seas. They need to keep that going. But this is also just a part of a general wave of imperialism uh, that came back to uh, Great Britain late twenty, late 19th, early 20th century. They decided to focus on the Middle East. It's one of the last places they could go. Um, so, yeah, they're going to find that um, 
They're going to make a lot of money here, and that, and as we're going to get to later, they're not going to share very much of it. Uh, but it, this is a very good move for them. Maybe it was naive on the uh, part of the Persians, but it's a done deal now. Now they've got this contract. And um, as going forward, oil is only going to become more and more important to everybody, especially with wars on the horizon. Now, after World War I, uh, with the Ottoman Empire defeated, Persia became a bit of a battleground for the British and the Russians. And in fact, Britain used it as a springboard for their invasion of Russia after the Russian Revolution. People may not be aware of that, but yes, Russia and the United sorry, Britain and the United States both invaded Russia uh, sort yep. of 1919, 1920 uh, to try and support the Tsars, the uh, royalists against the uh, uh, the socialists, the, the the rebels. Again, and just because I'm sorry, I was just going to add, just because they didn't do a very good job of it, doesn't mean they didn't do it. And they're and it, Russia, excuse me, the people who won the Bolsheviks had every right to be pissed off and not trust them because they literally invaded their country. So it's a big deal, even though it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and for more detail on that, again, check out our Cold War. Uh, Cold War series where we talked about that in detail. Now, mm-hmm. 1921, uh, a coup d'etat backed by the British in Persia brought a general, Reza Khan, into the government. He was initially the commander-in-chief of the army and minister for war. Then in 1923, he becomes the prime minister. In 1925, he manages to get parliament to vote to remove the current king of Persia, Ahmad mm. Shah Qajar, from the throne and have himself crowned Reza Shah Pahlavi. It's not very nice. <laughs> well, it's nice for him. It's, it's, good, it's good to be the king. Now, <laughs> a couple of years earlier that, in 1923, APOC gave £5,000, about £250,000 in today's money, to a certain gentleman uh, to get him to lobby the British government to... Get you know, allow them to have the sole control over oil resources in Persia. You want to take a guess as to who they bribed to lobby the British government, Ray? Uh, Pahlavi, <laughs> the big fat pink baby himself, Winston <laughs> ah. Churchill. They paid him a quarter of a million pounds in today's money to convince the British government to give them an exclusive. Uh, contract over oil in Persia, and he succeeded. Now, over the next 10 years or so, the Persians tried to renegotiate the terms of their oil agreement, but the British basically told them to fuck off and gave them the middle (laughs) finger for even trying. For example, in 1931, APOC informed the Persian government that its royalties for the year would amount to... Three hundred and sixty-six thousand seven hundred and eighty-two pounds. Even though in that same period the company's income taxes paid to the British government were about a million pounds, (laughs) so they're supposed to be paying out sixteen percent of net profits. But uh, you know, the the Iranians were getting dudded. Now, in nineteen thirty-three, the king Reza. Uh, personally got, not to be confused with Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan, who is just the king of, you know, 90s uh, avant-garde kung fu hip-hop. Uh, different guy. Trust me, I thought they were the same, but not apparently not. Uh, Reza uh, got, directly got involved in the negotiations in 33, threatened to kill uh, the Darcy con- concession altogether. Um Instead, miraculously, he re-signed the deal, added another 30 years onto it, and allowed the British to get away Mm. with a very low annual guaranteed payment of £750,000. So uh, what do you think he he got in return for signing that deal, Ray? Is it? Um, stupidity, naivete, uh, just looking out for himself. Um, I cannot explain. That is insane. I'm sure he got a kickback of some sort. 
Anyway, they also promised to give labourers better pay and more chances for advancement, build schools, yeah. hospitals, roads, telephone systems, but the British never delivered on any of those promises. Shocker. Shocker indeed. Now, in 1935, uh, Reza Shah asked foreign delegates and the League of Nations to use the term Iran, the historical name of the country used by its native people, uh, in formal correspondence. And um, I think we'll finish up by just talking mm. a little bit about why it's called Iran. Um, it, as I indicated earlier in the episode, I think it comes from the word Aryan, which dates back to the Indian and Iranian or Indo-Iranian people as they're known. It actually means noble. Any idea how it came to be used by the Nazis, Ray? Um, no, just because they saw themselves as really noble people. No, it just had to do with the bloodlines going back to the, uh, to the Greeks. And of course the Greeks were in, uh, when in that area during Alexander's, uh, invasions. Uh, but it's all a bunch of mumbo, Nazi mumbo jumbo, but they convinced themselves that they were descendants of the Aryans coming from well, Greece. It- it actually starts with the French, not the Nazis. In the nineteenth French in the nineteenth century, Arthur de Gobineau, uh, a French aristocrat and novelist, developed this theory of the Aryan master race. He wrote a oh, book God. that is a really fascinating read. It's really terrific, uh, really tremendous. You should read it. <laughs> it's called an, yep. an essay on the inequality of the human races, and he basically claims that aristocrats are superior to commoners because they possess more Aryan genetic traits because of less inbreeding with inferior races, just more inbreeding amongst cousins and sisters and <laughs> brothers and mothers and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But their bloodlines were more pure. He said that French aristocrats like himself were descendants of the Germanic Franks who had conquered Gaul in the 5th century CE while the common French people were the descendants of the racially inferior Celtic and Latin uh, peoples that had been there earlier. By the way, he was good friends with Alexei de Tocqueville, best known for his work Democracy in America. Mm -hmm. Strange bedfellows. So anyway, uh, that's where Aryan comes from. So APOC, APOC, now becomes the AIOC, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And much like Stalin and Hitler, Reza Shah did a really good job in many ways of modernizing his country, but he was also authoritarian and dictatorial. He let the British and the Americans take his oil, though, so he was pretty much okay in their books. But as we've said lots of times uh, on our Cold War show, you know, the West doesn't really have a problem with dictators as long as they do what they're told. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those days, Iran wasn't a theocracy. It had a pro-Western, pro-American foreign policy, a rapidly modernizing capitalist economy. Women didn't wear veils or didn't have to wear veils. Anyway, they could choose to wear veils. They didn't have to. They were encouraged to get an education. Some even wore miniskirts. If you jump on YouTube, uh, you'll find video of uh, Iran from back in the 40s and 50s. It's really fascinating. Unfortunately... Reza didn't do what he was told in World War II. Iran declared they were neutral. They wouldn't allow the Allies to use their land as a transport corridor. And he was forced to abdicate by the British and the Russians who invaded and occupied Iran. Remember all that stuff in our Cold War show about the Atlantic Charter, self-determination of nations? Yeah, they didn't didn't really believe that. Not so much? Not so much. (laughs) So here, we don't mean it here. Elsewhere, so, in theory, in general. So they forced him to ad- abdicate in favor of his son, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, who became the Shah in 1941. And See, I, Muhammad. And I think that's where we will end the first show of The Bullshit Filter. We'll pick up the story of Iran in episode number two next week. So thanks for listening to the first episode. Um, If you haven't already, check out our website, thebullshitfilter.com. 
Uh, you can follow us or you can follow me on Twitter at Cameron Riley. Uh, Facebook at Cameron Riley. We've got a bullshit filter Facebook page you can follow. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, like early March 2017, iTunes, Apple have rejected <laughs> our submission of the podcast, probably because they think the word right. bullshit is a profanity. So you won't be able to search for us on iTunes. Yet. But uh, if you uh, if you uh, don't they know who we are to us later. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you're listening to us later after that, we'll hopefully have fixed that. We might be called the BS filter or something like that. Look for that in yeah. iTunes if you uh, haven't found us already. Uh, Ray, do you want to give a plug for your Twitter, your Facebook? Uh, yeah, I'm on. I'm certainly on Twitter, uh, www2podcaster, uh, just, just Ray Harris. Uh, Facebook, you can search me out. Um, of course, we have the uh, Life of Caesar, Life of Augustus, Cold War, God dang, how many podcasts do we do? Anyway, just look for either one of us on Facebook. You will find us, and then you'll find links to all the podcasts that we put out. And we certainly hope you check this out. We plan on having a lot of fun with this series. And if you want to talk to us about the subject in the podcast, you can go up to our forum, thepodcastnetwork.com slash vanilla. Uh, Debate us, chat with us, give us ideas, uh, perspectives. uh, Just have a conversation. Thanks for listening. This is the Bullshit Filter.